Joe Stacy is an entertainer and partner at Motion Fitness Group based out of Irvine, California. Joe's battled with alcohol addiction since he was a teenager and has overcome countless obstacles to get to his current state of sobriety and success. His story is an absolute inspiration. His openness and dedication to honesty is commendable. He offers hope to people struggling with addiction and proves that there is light at the end of the tunnel. That with the proper support, surrender, and the will to live, you can overcome. It was really an honor to sit down and hear Joe's story. He is an incredible leader in the community and is actively bettering people's lives every day. We can overcome. We can persevere. Life is not always easy, but it is worth it. Thank you for reminding us of that, Joe. So you grew up in Massachusetts, grew up in Massachusetts. Cape Cod. Sent, yeah. When did you move to Georgia? So in 2013, I moved down to Georgia. I had one of my sisters was living there, and um, I knew I wanted to. Cape Cod's kind of a place where you want to you want to get out if you grew up there. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people feel that way, but um, and so yeah, I just jumped at the opportunity. Needed a restart. That's when I got into fitness and in Georgia. In Georgia, yeah. yeah. So. Going back to Cape Cod real quick, were your parents there, like were your grandparents from there and then your parents, how did you end up being born and raised there? Yeah, so my dad's side of the family, uh, they have multiple generations that lived on Cape Cod and then uh, my mom grew up in a place called Worcester, Massachusetts, um, which is a little more Western Mass. Um, And so they met in the summer down on Cape Cod and, uh, you know, the rest is history, but so yeah um so then you get to georgia yep and how did you get into fitness what was your first exposure like so my fitness uh journey if you will started when um i got sober for the first time i was 22 years old i just got in a second dui lost my license for like two years or something like that um and at that time i knew i needed to make some changes if i was going to you know, live a fulfilling and meaningful life. Uh, like the, the evidence was clear, my, my, my history there. And uh, so actually like addiction kind of pushed me towards uh, fitness. And it was, uh, you know, winter on Cape Cod, which I just described as, you know, really slow. I was like laid off from work. I was doing landscape construction at the time. And man, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I just, I uh, started working out, you know, I started, I had like, I don't know if you've ever read like men's health, right? And there was like a Spartacus workout on men's health, which is, which is funny thinking back on it. But it was like I had 15 pound, 10 pound dumbbells in my, my, my parents' basement. You know, the ceilings are, you know, five, you know, six feet tall. Like I'm just kind of like Super crouched short. down. I can't do overhead presses or anything. But I, I just kind of started doing that a few times a week. I started being more conscious of what I, what I was eating. I started running. Um, and I, you know, it slowly but surely changed me and that I knew, I knew, you know, with that change, I wanted to like share that with people. I was, I was very naive nice. to know like what it meant to be successful in the fitness industry or like how much work I was going to take to like, you know, make a career and life out of it. But, um, that's when things like clicked where I was like, I don't want to be where I'm currently at. And this is like the outlet that is like 
pulling me in a, a new, better direction. Nice. So not just personal fitness, but you wanted to spread the love to others. Yeah. Like maybe the, the insights of being an instructor and whatnot. So you yeah. said you were 22 after yeah. two DUIs. You didn't have your license for yeah. two years. Uh, was that when you first saw that men's health magazine or are we going back to Cape Cod when that's where you were a landscaper yeah. and yes. Yeah. I was so, so your exposure to that magazine and fitness would have happened on Cape Cod. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're there. What do you think there was environmental elements and then maybe just familial elements that led into addiction? Let's go back a little bit there yeah. and then we'll get to your success story sure. with, with fitness and coming out to California. But yeah. how did that start? Um, you know, addiction for me has been such a major part of my life, um, because I never had a period where alcohol was fun or normal or just social. Um, for me, you know, I grew up with a good group of friends. We all played sports together. We all hung out. We got good grades. Um, I always had this this feeling, you know, I mean, my earliest memories were something's missing. I'm not enough, very fearful and insecure. And I can't really, I mean, we'll probably get into kind of where now as a 34 year old man, I can look back and be like, Oh, this is what caused those feelings. But, um, so when, you know, you get to the high school and, your friends start drinking, you hear about parties, you know, we started experimenting, smoking weed. And I, when I, when I did that, I thought I had found the elixir of life. I had found this, like, why, why am I not doing, why haven't I been doing this? And why am I not doing it all the time? It, it like, it eased everything, it, you know, it calmed me down and, you know, the, the, <clears throat> all the stress just fell off my shoulders after having a couple drinks or smoking weed before school or whatever. And I could just feel, I felt like I could be myself. And, um, that's, that's a scary, uh, in hindsight, in right? Hindsight, it's, yeah. it's very, um, dangerous start to, you know, somebody that's like kind of just figuring out who they are. Right. You know, like as a teenager, you don't, you know, you think you can, you know, everything and you, and you think you're invincible and, um, your brain's still developing, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Especially as a male, not till you're 26, sometimes even later. Right. Those young years, I think it's important to face the reality and the harshness of the world without doling it with substance. Right. But if you don't have the instruction by, let's say parents or your yeah. support group and people are just allowing it. Yeah. then you might turn to that as the solution. And then over time it becomes something. Right. More. So up until that point, I was a very good student. You know, I was very, I got good grades. I didn't try very hard, but I got good grades. You know, I love sports. Uh, again, wasn't, wasn't very, I wasn't like a star athlete or anything, but I loved you know, being a part of teams and stuff like that. And, um, that changed when, when that introduction to drugs and alcohol came into my life, that just, turned me in a different direction so what do you think the difference was was it biological you think just your internal like person was dealing with alcohol a certain way because you yeah. mentioned like you never treated it 
as a social, just kind of letting loose on the weekend type things. You, you had a certain amount of angst prior dabbled on this. And then you're like, Oh, this is the solution. Cause I'm sure you said you had friends that probably were able to partake and didn't have it affect. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't have it affect them a certain way. And I think that is the universal truth across the world. And especially in the United States on junior high campuses, high school campuses, college, that there, there's some folks that can kind of drink, not become addicted right? and treat it as that social item. And then on the other side, I'm just, I'm curious what that yeah. was like for you. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's definitely part biological. Um, I definitely think I was um, set up as far as like genetically, uh, whether whatever way my br- my brain has been wired, um, I have addiction on both sides of my, my, my family, uh, my dad's side, my mother's side. Um, and I was always, my, my mom dealt with it as a child she she had um a father that was an alcoholic a stepmother that was an alcoholic and and so she was always very wary anytime she found out one of her kids i'm one of four i have three older sisters any of us started drinking um if she saw any sign of excess she was automatically kind of like hey you need to stop this you know and so I think combined like that combination of biological predisposition of like this, this could be a thing for me. And then uh, just trauma. Um, I don't know. I think 99% of people that suffer from addiction that I've met have some sort of trauma in their childhood. And for me, I lost my father when I was a, a year old. Um, and that's something that I never dealt with. I never grieved from it. Um, my family didn't really discuss it. And it's something that I just carried with me. And so that's where a lot of my anger and fearfulness that I just described came from. And and so, again, you kind of have all these feelings as a child and you're not emotionally able to, to handle those feelings and then you find a substance and it's like this takes away that those negative feelings that make me uncomfortable why wouldn't i be doing this all the time did you have a replacement father figure per se or anybody else or was it just you and my mom remarried right around the time that i started drinking um so, so that's that, a big gap though that's one year old to yeah i was probably she remarried i was a freshman in high school so yeah, That's when I started game. drinking too. Yeah. So uh, 14 years old, I, yep. I remember, because I have addiction on both sides too. Mm. And I think luckily I've, I've never been one that has that addictive bug. Right. You know, there's times where we all get too drunk sure. and act like idiots and whatnot. But um, I started young too with that. Mm. And I think a lot of people do. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very socially accepted. Um, and again, like I would never, never look down on somebody or judge somebody that goes out and drinks and you know, even does drugs. Like I'm not going to sit here and, and say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. It was so bad for you. You know, um, it's kind of everybody's own um, life that they want to live, you know. And so 
um, you know, when you're surrounded by these kids that you've known essentially your whole life and we're all doing the same thing. And there's that time period. I'm sure like when you're, you first started, right. It's everybody's, it's like, Oh, so-and-so got so drunk last night and, uh, Oh, so-and-so did this, you know, um, everybody's kind of learning like how to drink properly. Right. And so for the, for the first couple of years, it was just like, Oh, I'm just figuring out what my tolerance is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing, you know? And so you can kind of justify it that way, which is again, very dangerous for somebody that's kind of heading down a certain path. So when did you notice or recognize like, wait, I might have a fucking problem here. I blacked out. I would black out a lot. So if I've drank alcohol thousands of times, there's only been a handful of times where I didn't black out. Oh, interesting. So that kind of gives you the, the, I, once I start drinking, I cannot stop. You can call it uh, an allergy. Um, I I have two drinks, and it, you know everything kind of like I described slows down, you know, and that's. But then I want to I want to keep going, <laughs> and I'll, I'll run I'll run through this you know fake brick wall. Yeah. If a, a drink's on the other side of it, you're you're trying to grab me. I'll push you out of the way, and I'll run through that wall to go get it. And um, it's just. Uh, it's always been like that for me, you know, and, and, and when you, when you drink like that, or if you use drugs like that, there's going to be negative consequences that come from that. So that started. And so all of a sudden you're like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this. What age were you then when you're like, wait, this shit's hitting the fan. So I had, it was a, I believe it was my senior year and it was, it was right around Easter time, so my, my sisters were all home. My family was here. I think it was actually the day before Easter. Um, and I went to a party, and my and kids were doing Adderall at the time. You know, this was, you know, t- I, I graduated from high school in 2006. And that t- at that time, that's when Oxycontin was, like, everywhere. Percocets, pills were becoming this thing, right? And I'm very fortunate that I never went down the opiate route, mostly because I had so much trouble just with alcohol, right? Um, but at a party, I took some Adderall, and I drank the way that I normally drink, which is in excess to the point of blacking out or passing out. And I, I stumbled in. I somehow, somebody luckily gave me a ride home, made it home safe. I, I have no recollection of this. And my mom, you know, being the being a mom um, and also, you know, being wary of, oh, he's going out, he's probably drinking, felt the need to go check on me. And she went into my room and she found me lying on the floor covered in my own vomit. Um, and I went to, so I had to get rushed to the hospital. It was alcohol poisoning. Um, and, you know, essentially an overdose. You know, alcohol poisoning sounds nice. You know, it's a nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and honestly, at that time, I was not aware of how close I came to dying that night. And my mom, you know, being, you know, raising me on her own. And like I said, knowing what alcohol looks like and knowing what it can do to, to somebody and a family, she immediately said, you need to get help. And at the time, I was binge drinking, right? I wasn't drinking every day. I was 
you know, partying on the weekends. And, and so she sent me to a detox, which I didn't need to physically detox because I hadn't been consuming enough alcohol that I was going through withdrawals, but it was kind of like a scared straight type of moment for me where I was in a, a treatment center on Cape Cod and, you know, with, with people that were doing heroin, you know, heroin addicts. And I was just like, how old were you just to give people a timeline? I was 17 years old. 17. Okay. Yeah. And so in there, you know, you can't, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little bit, I have an attitude. I'm a punk. I think I know everything. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, sitting in these circles. This is my first exposure to anything AA treatment related. And I'm not an alcoholic, you know, I'm just young. You know, I'm just, I'm just learning how to, you know, drink and, but you can't help but listen, you know, you can't help but hear people's stories and they're the beginning of these people's stories. Where did they start? They sounded, sounded consistent. very like mine, uh, you know? And so that, that was the first seed that got planted, but I got out of there. I was there for a week. Like I said, it was just kind of like a, um, a scared straight type of moment that my mom was trying to say, Hey, you need, you need to stop this. This is going to end well. And I got out of there and I was at my friend's house that day, smoking weed, playing video games. And it didn't change anything. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't going to change me. So, so then fast forward a couple of years, it was, it yeah. just more of the same then kind of balancing work, school, partying. Yeah. I mean, um, late teens, you know, the, the DUIs, you know, loss of a license sucks as a, as a young kid. And, you know, again, that didn't, that didn't slow me down. And, um, and, you know, we, we talked about environment just being, that's what I knew. That's kind of what I wanted to do. So that's what I'm attracting. Right. Was and there like really not much else to do on Cape Cod too at the time? Not, not really. You know, you, you, you had like a, if like I was working landscape, you know, um, you know, it's a rain day. What do you do? You go, you go have some beers, you know, and that's kind of how it goes. Um, and I'm hanging around with people that want to do the same thing. I'm seeking those people out, whether I knew it or not. And so that just carried on for, for a long time. And, you know, and multiple arrests, I went to, uh, up to New Hampshire and I went to a small college, Keene State College. It was a party school. I went there for a few semesters, just partied and ended up dropping out, moving back with my parents. And that's when I got that second DUI. And I remember it was a Monday afternoon. It was it was raining. I was off from work and and I had rear ended a, a family of four. And luckily they didn't charge you know, press charges or anything and and I just remember sitting in the back of the of the, the cop car and, and just being like, I can't I can't do this anymore. You know, I had I had the you know, I think everybody has to hit some type of bottom to to I mean everybody's could look different, right? You lose your job, you um get in a car wreck. There, there everybody's bottom can look completely different and in in uh, in AA, they always talk about there's always a, a trap door wherever your bottom is. You can always go lower. Um, but at that moment, I had that I, I got to stop doing this, and I still to this day I remember 
my, I, you know, you have your, your one phone call, you get thrown in jail. And, and, um, I called my mom and the, the, the sound of her voice, like it's not any, any child wants to hear that, you know? And so that started me, you know, that was a a pivotal moment where I, I decided, I made the decision that I didn't want to do that anymore. And so, you know, I had to go to a like two week after you get two two DUIs in in uh, Massachusetts, you have to go to like a two week treatment, basically an inpatient program. And again, more exposure to this information, more just kind of sitting there listening, like okay. So um, at probably, this point, comparing those two meetings, let's say, yeah. were were you thinking about it differently then after that wake up call, just being in there hearing stories from heroin addicts and people, quote unquote, more extreme? Yeah. Were you still like, uh, I don't need to be here. Like I made a singular mistake. I don't have a problem. Or at that point were you actually like, shit, I need to do something. No, no. Yeah. I had been beaten up enough. I mean, there was, you know, I, I probably, I've told you two or three stories. There was 30, 40 instances of, of just of negative consequences, whether it's losing a relationship, burning a bridge with a friend or losing a job or, Whatever it was, um, you know, I, I had been beaten up enough to know to kind of, that was my first stage of surrender. You know, you get further in my story, you can see it's like, for me, surrender has been like a, a peeling back an onion. You know, you want to get to the core. And that was my first like, okay, I, I, I'm not, this is more powerful than me. I can't do this by myself. I need help. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of moved forward. That's when I was, it was winter on Cape Cod. I still remember, uh, being in treatment and that those two weeks and the Patriots were playing in the playoffs. This is like, you know, Tom Brady's prime, you know, wow. they, and, but they, and we begged, we begged cause you know, we're in, we're up near like Lowell, Massachusetts. And this is like diehard Patriots. You know, we, we were watching the. Uh, the Jets, it was the year Rex Ryan led Jets beat the Patriots in the playoffs and we were all watching it and we were like begging them to make us watch it and just made us all miserable. But um, They didn't put it on for you guys? They did, they, oh, did. they did. And we were like all stoked, but then it was like this horrible game. We got blown out, oh, we lost gotcha. in the first round. And um, But uh, my point is it was winter time. And so that's when I got back home and I was like, what am I going to do now with my life? And that's when, you know, the men's health workout, you know, describe that moment. So how did you get a hold of that magazine? Yeah. And you said that you played at sports before. So you're yeah. an athlete. Right. Um, but you get that magazine. How? Yeah. I, um, I don't remember like the specifics. I just remember being like really bored, <laughs> like really like, what because you know you're not working no you're living with your parents this time. No, no instagram yeah no <laughs> social media um i just remember being like what am i gonna do and the, the other big key factor that got me into it was up until that point i was smoking cigarettes and then you, i went to this two-week program to to get eventually get my my license reinstated and they didn't allow nicotine so i had two weeks of like not smoking cigarettes and i was like you know you're just like a crazy person still after a couple of weeks so uh it, it it was honestly like boredom 
and, and just kind of being fed up. Like I, I was sick of feeling like shit all the time. And up until that point, I never had cared about what I ate. I never cared about what I looked. I never, I hadn't touched weights you know, even playing high school sports, we never, we didn't have like a weightlifting program or anything like that. So I, I hadn't, it was all new to me, you know, um, I always felt like I was intelligent enough to do something with my life. Right. But I just hadn't found anything that I was passionate enough about that was worth diving into. And, and that was the first moment that I was like, I want to, I want to like learn everything. I want to, you know, school for me was always like, you know, I wasn't a great test taker. I got to listen to this guy lecture, read this book, take this test. It was just monotonous. And I never really learned much, to be honest with you. I would cram, you care, I, could, yeah. I could cram and, you know, pass the test or whatever. But I think there's something to be said there, even being a landscaper, too. I think some people just enjoy work through their bodies yes. and not just desk work and like pure brain work, you know, for sure. You always use a combination of both. But so when you find fitness in your training in your parents' basement, you said, mm, right? Yeah. How long were you kind of building up your own capacity to then be like, wait, uh, this is what I want to do. I, I'm going to go to Georgia. <laughs> I want to hear about how that happened. Yeah. And then what was your first exposure of like training other people and stuff like that. Um, I think I don't, again, like this is so long ago. I don't remember like a specific moment where I was like, I'm going to be a personal trainer. I'm going to, I'm going to get into fitness, but it definitely evolved over time. I had ran uh, a half marathon with my sister and um, st I got a gym membership. I was working out at a planet fitness, you know, a local planet fitness. Nice. And, you know, I think the, just the change and you know my my family could definitely see it too just like i was always so insecure and uh and and like i said fearful of everything you know and that when when you start training and you know your body changes you feel stronger and even if it's incremental even if it's a very small amount you you know that change pushed me towards like and 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 also recognizing like hey i got and i i have nothing but respect for people that do hard labor and that's their career and um like the the landscape company that i was working for was actually my father's um when he passed he gave it to my uncle who gave it to his grandson who's like my cousin or second cousin so i have a lot of respect for those guys that like that's their career and they bust their ass, but I was doing it 40 hours a week and man, it's, it's tough. And I recognize like, Hey, no, I, I, I feel like I'm meant for more. And, and so when the fitness emerged, I was changing so much and feeling so much better. Just, you know, I went from like hating myself to like tolerating myself <laughs> that, that led me to be like, why don't I make a career out of this? And I've seen you post something about that how fitness is one of the like untouched uh, antidepressants and just absolutely it can it could flip the switch on how you think about yourself sometimes so when you started weight training how long until you actually notice physical differences and mental differences i mean a little bit along yeah. the way and i'm sure it wasn't like a a total switch but 
Yeah, the the physical t- uh, uh, changes took a long time. <laughs> you know, honestly, I uh, I really even when I got into you know as I got hired and I'm a trainer now, I didn't look like a trainer. You know, I always had, I always kind of had like a, a, a skinny fat, right? Like, oh, you're so thin, and like, but still like a really high body fat percentage. And so it took me a long time to like you know again, and I was I was figuring it out. I was I was figuring out like how to connect to my body when I'm lifting and what exercises are the best. And, um, you know, obviously in that time, you know, you could go on the internet and look up videos and follow people that, you know, knew what they were doing. And so, you know, a lot of what I, I learned was self-taught, you know, and, and that's how I learned the best is, and I think most people was, all right, I'm, I get this information, I'm going to apply, it. I'm going to try something, I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm going to learn from that and keep, like, Just see what the results that process are. going. Yeah, and so the physical changes definitely didn't come come till much, much later. Um, but the uh, mental, you know, kind of always being an anxious kid, you know, getting diagnosed with anxiety and prescribed Zoloft when I was... 16 years old and uh ADD and you know all the stuff that like in in reality I probably needed to move my body more maybe meditate or pray <laughs> and see a therapist if I had done those things you know I'd, I definitely wouldn't need any any type of pill or diagnosis not but, as much money in that no we have a system <laughs> no, that encourages no. the prescriptions and yeah oh, you you mean and there's always outliers out there but a majority of people like you just said if you if you moved a little bit more, yeah, you might not have to take all those pills that you're taking. Yeah, no, I know it's uh, yeah, don't even get me started. <laughs> it's it's frustrating, man. Um, you know, I remember taking, you know, my again, like I have this concerned, somewhat overbearing, but lo- nothing but love coming from my mom, and she takes me to a doctor. There's something wrong with him, you know. At 16 years old, he's, and um, you know, I remember taking a a little written <laughs> she like printed something out and you just say like are you feeling anxious these times you know and you're just like checking boxes and you're like yeah yeah, yeah. and then and then she's like okay she like looks at it for two seconds we're gonna put you on zoloft like, like, <laughs> like, like that's that's not how it should go you know what i mean that's crazy just a yeah. little a little questionnaire i mean that's that's how the doctor office visits go oftentimes and given mm-hmm. some of those things are, are very much necessary but yeah our brains are so complex and then you add in your environment and lifestyle and not just needing movement, but maybe more activity, needing something more to live for something to be passionate about. But so many people don't have that. Right. And then the system tells you to go get checked out and it's easier, right? Factually, let's say to just give a pill and maybe fix someone, put a bandaid on someone. Right. But in reality, you might need a full, full 360 change, which is going to take a lot more effort than just getting a prescription. Right. And I think uh, that's hard, man. I I always think about the generational differences, right? My, my parents are like, go to the doctor, go to the doctor, listen to the doctor, do what he tells you to do. Uh, That's like their, that's their plan of that's their course of action kind of no matter what the problem is right and i have this distrust of of 
uh, Western medicine, right? Like I, I'm like, no man, like I'm not taking anything. If I, I don't take, you know, ibuprofen unless I'm like, <laughs> can't walk, you know, like there's, I just don't see, you know, and again, I, like you said, there's a time and a place. I think some, some people, you know, it's, yeah, you know. dude, ibuprofen is no good. So I had acute kidney failure from oh, right. I, from ibuprofen when I got yeah. my wisdom teeth out. Oh, shit. so all four of them were impacted Yeah, and they all got taken out and I was prescribed, uh, what is it? Um, what's that pain medicine? And Vicodin mm-hmm. and ibuprofen. Yep. Took Vicodin and it made me sick because yeah. I didn't have enough food and water yeah, in my yeah, system. Yeah. So I'm like, no thanks. I, I didn't really feel that much pain, didn't need it. But the ibuprofen, right, to reduce swelling yeah. from the doctor and from my parents, make sure you're taking your ibuprofen. Make sure you're taking your ibuprofen. And I wasn't drinking or eating anything, of course, because my mouth's all jacked. Yeah. And then after about two days, I start getting lower back pain. And I'm like, oh, like, what is this? This doesn't feel good. Yeah. Parents just say, oh, you're laying around too much. You need to get up and move around. Like they had no idea. Nobody knew. Right. But it was ibuprofen getting stacked up in my kidneys and not flushed out because I wasn't drinking or eating anything. Right. And finally, after a couple of days, like I was dying, literally dying. <laughs> so my stepmom sees me one morning and it's like, OK, we're going to the hospital. Let's see what's going on. Yeah. And after trying to draw my blood, sticking like six, seven times because I was so dehydrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, your kidneys are failing. Like, if you want to have came, if you would have come in a couple hours later, most likely dialysis is what they said. So, the point being is these little yeah. quick fixer pills. I think, Grant, right. you could look it up how many um, Tylenol kills X amount of people per year, ibuprofen. For things like that, it's. I want to tie it back into what you said, not just with distrusting Western medicine, because there's a lot to distrust, but then I would argue like the MRI machine and there's certain feats in engineering and technology that came from the West and uh, complex systems like military even had a lot to do with that and uh, NASA and different space instruments. But a lot of things we feel like we need to fix with the, Oh, fill out this paper. And then at the end, the equation leads to here's a pill. Here's this, here's that. Yeah. So no, no, just natural elements of sleep. Well, move your body. Um, you don't even have to do anything crazy. You don't have to look like a, a fitness phenom on Instagram, Right, right, right. But just base level things. Yeah, absolutely. But what is it? Regular doctors only go through, a couple of weeks of nutrition training and whatnot. Yeah. Like my, yeah, my yeah. mom, for example, was just there a couple of weeks ago and, uh, the doctor said, Oh, like your cholesterol is a little high. Ma- make sure you're taking in as like vegetable oils and not a lot of red meat. And they're still yeah. preaching that shit. dude. I know. I it know. blows my mind. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and everything is, I, I hate to get too pessimistic, but everything's financially driven. You know, big pharma is it's got its grips on this country. And I mean, one thing, you know, talking about addiction, the, uh, the opiate epidemic, I mean, that was started by Oxycontin, Purdue Pharma. Like they created a drug from opiates, you know, opium. You know, they created heroin in a pill, essentially, and put it on the streets, you know, and doctors were heavily heavily incentivized to incentivized to prescribe this drug 
and and they made it they they got a label approved that said it's not addictive it's 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 insane it's insanity that that happened in the united states right and yeah and it's like doctors smoking cigarettes for advertisements and whatnot back in the day and all the things that were pushed around sugar and fats you're right that the bottom line is really where a lot of those campaigns are pushed and right if something's super addictive how can we squash this or manipulate the data so then we can label it legally quote unquote and then harm so many people in the process and it's it comes down to earning a profit right which is one of the very negative detrimental elements of capitalism and a flaw in the system that needs to be updated it needs to be fixed yeah i don't think like capitalism should be abolished because a lot of people will take that that little example and kind of apply it across the board that there's going to be too too many profit driven systems that are going to lead to a bunch of like negative outcomes in society but one we can hone in on specifically is big pharma yeah that that's like you could think of i i even know people personally that had an addiction start through dabbling in those substances that if you trace them back, like you said, were put out by big companies and government and stuff. And that's another thing with alcohol that I was thinking about when you're describing it is it's a socially accepted Mm -hmm. drug. I mean, it's still a drug per se. It's literally poisoning yourself a little bit to change the biochemistry in your brain and feel a certain way. And then we all know how a hangover feels like that's not good. Like if you feel like shit, right. Uh, that's your body telling you something but that's always such an easy gateway Mm -hmm. because we've been doing it since the beginning of time right a little social lubricant some people push it too far some people unfortunately will end up taking their lives because they go too far but you know it's loaded up in the shelves so just drink responsibly yeah exactly yeah god i always laugh at the the commercials that are like people like a bunch of you know a dozen good-looking people you know dancing on the beach and, not slurring you know, like everyone's yeah. talking perfectly clear and we know like, that's not what the average american bar looks like you know like no <laughs> yeah. man it's it's uh it's it's almost comical you know but i mean so much so much of this is just i awareness you know as as a as an adult that can make decisions right and the 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 problem i think lies a lot of times is when it's kids, man, that's what I have a problem with, you know, when they're, when kids are getting prescribed, um, Xanax or, you know, any, any, any type of without, and again, it, it typically comes from a parent that just wants their child to not be so anxious, not be depressed, fit in at school and all, you know, they, it comes from caring for your child, but it's, uh, it's frightening that these doctors are willing to be like, instead of being like, uh, I think he should just, you know, maybe get a gym membership or, you know, join a club or, you know, be more so, you know, or maybe as, you know, there is therapy. I know a good therapist I can recommend or, or some, you just, that should be like the last resort. Yeah. You know? Like being plugged into something outside of yourself, like yeah. church and God fulfills yeah. that for many people, right. clubs. Um, but Xanax was a huge problem in our high school. Yeah. And I think it was kids just tapping into their parents cabinets right and right. then selling them to friends and it right. was when 
weed was becoming legal yeah. um, and all the clinics were opening up and stuff yep. like that. Yep. And it just becomes this little social contagion that's kind of cool. Yep. And you have a population now, an isolated high school population that's experimenting. And yep. the way I see it is like the variance with how someone was raised, the biological variance and how someone's going to be able to actually cope with intoxicating themselves. Right. You get these crazy outliers that are spit out of this person's blacking out constantly. This person overdosed. Yeah. This person acts like an asshole. But the, I think the reason why alcohol is still kind of socially accepted across the board is because out of that, that group, you still see the people that are dabbling, but they're kind of just socially using it, right? Sure. They're not yeah. hurting anyone or that they're not being too much of a detriment to themselves. Right. So it's like, okay, you know, it's not that bad. We got to focus on just the outliers, like the crazy ones. Right. And that's hard. Like kind of by definition, that's going to be like an impossible problem to solve because you're right. basically saying this is all okay. We're just recognizing that some people can't handle it. Yeah. Therefore, like figure it out. We have rehab and these systems to hope, yeah. hopefully fix you. But it's, it's complex, like analyzing family members that you and I have both seen, like seeing yep. addiction passed down. Yep. It's, it's not so easy. And turning to fitness, I think, could be a healthy kind of shift. Yeah. And you can be addicted to anything, right? Like you could, you could be in a deficit for too long where you're destroying your body because you're too obsessed with something. Right. Which we've seen those stories too. Sure. But at the end of the day, I would argue... Always, if you are choosing to abuse substances, there is a healthy way to transition into physical fitness right. where you can still kind of develop a, a certain circuit in your brain that's giving you that little dopamine. It gives you something to like look forward to yeah. and a, a way to feel better. Yeah, with addiction, you need to replace it, right? You need, yeah. um, I guess, depending how far down the rabbit hole you go, you know, you and and how much unresolved trauma you have, the timeline would be different, right? It might take somebody a year where they're just, you know, going to 12 step meetings, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and and then they start going for walks, you know, outside and, you know, they're eating, you know, because, you know, typically when you stop drinking or using drugs, you're craving sugar, you're craving, you know, fried food, shitty foods. And so maybe maybe it's after a year they're like, okay, I've been sober for a year. I can I can get back into it, you know. But but that's kind of the damage that was done, you know, through their using. And then other people, you know, people that maybe don't wouldn't classify under addiction, and they're more of like a heavy drinker that want to that they want to make a change in in lifestyle, and you know that can be an immediate replacement and and be an absolute game changer. Um, and, and and that's the case with me, you know. I I ran with it and made a made a career out of it, you know. So, what's the struggle been like along the way, staying sober and knowing that if I can't really mess with this, I can't just have a beer or two. Yeah. So so you know, kind of getting back to my story a little bit, like you know, I that was I didn't stay sober. <laughs> I didn't stay sober. I moved to Atlanta. I got into fitness. Uh, moved down there with uh, my ex girlfriend. And, um, we kind of started this new life and, um, 
again, so much of telling this story, I can, I was unaware at the time, naive at the time, but looking back, I can, I can, I can look at it and be like, and I was not, I, I put like a lot of band-aids on these, like, uh, on, on unresolved trauma and these like kind of emotional wounds and, and just kind of the, the addiction was still present. I just wasn't using drugs or alcohol at the time. And so I ended up, um, that girl that I moved down with, we broke up, I changed jobs. Um, I was kind of on my own as an adult for the first time. Cause her and I had been, been together, been together since, since 22, like right around the time that I had gotten sober and, you know, I started smoking weed first and that just, uh, became like, Oh, do it at night. You know, I'm so busy. I was managing, managing a, a popular gym in Atlanta and I was, um, you know, I started like dating as an adult for the first time. And, you know, so I used it socially sometimes like, you know, and it was, it was just kind of mellowed me out and weed you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how old were you at this point when you were managing the gym and newly single? I was 28, you know, I had, 28. I had built okay. this career out of fitness and was fairly, you know, at that point somewhat successful and I was personal training, you know, still and teaching some classes and, um, but like I said, I didn't, I didn't realize at the time I, but I was still carrying around this like this, uh, these wounds that I never really wanted to look, I never looked at and I, I really didn't want to. And, um, so the, the occasional smoking of weed, uh, calms me, you know, puts me in the moment and which, which it does that things, you know, yeah. I, I have a lot of positive things to say about marijuana. I think it's, you know, if I had to pick one, right, like alcohol, marijuana, you know, alcohol nearly killed me and, you know, marijuana was, you know, kind of a gateway almost to, to getting back into drinking. And that's what ended up happening with me because I started drinking. I mean, excuse me, I started smoking around the clock and, um, you know, again, that's just, that's how I'm wired. Yeah. That's, that's it's a how, tolerance yeah, thing too. exactly to yeah. your weed tolerance. If it's just starts off at night and then yeah. you kind of get used to doing it all day, every day. And then right. social settings, like if, if you're, if you're in the mindset stone, because I used to smoke a lot of weed too, back in yeah. high school and, I got out of it. Mm. Um, but you kind of train yourself to communicate with people high. And then let's yep. say when you're sober, now you feel kind of outside of your skin because yes. you're not in that mindset. And then it could go the other way. You can you can have people that then get sober. And when they try to dabble in weed again, this yep. was me. Yep. I wanted to stay away from it because it made me feel so uncomfortable right. in my skin. Right, right. You know, like yeah. super anxious. I'm like, wait, I want to fall back into my sobriety because that's where yes. I was comfortable. Yeah. Because I think you could still abuse weed for as socially oh, totally. as accepted as it is. I think it's that your motivation of why you're doing it. Right. And then just really how it, it makes you feel. Right. So you can justify anything, right? Yeah, you can be yeah. like, oh, man, it's like. It allows me to be spiritual, man. You know, like, and, uh, you know, like I said, I, I think um, it's not it. It's it can be a lifesaver for a lot of people, you know. And if that's the alternative to to shooting up heroin and you start smoking weed or using CBD or any type of like alternative, like I'm I'm, I'm all for it. Um, Same, yeah. But it was right around the time those the the pens started coming out, like oil, the, they, the yeah. oil, yeah. And so, like, I had a client in uh, in Atlanta. He would travel to Denver, and he would stock up on all these pens, and 
and he's like, dude, you like smoking weed? Like, try this. And then I just would carry that thing. You know, it'd be in my car. It'd be, it'd be with me at all times. And, and that's, um, that's when it became like all the time, you know, cause the, it's, you could hit it like, in the bathroom anywhere, yeah. you know? <laughs> no, it's too efficient at its job. Yeah. So when you get the cartridges like that, yep. if it's going to be everywhere, of course you're going to start using it more frequently. Cause if, if you're going to smoke up a bowl or light up a joint, it's stinky. It has a process. Yeah. Whoever invented that for their business model, it's genius. It's the yeah. most efficient way for, for patients per se to partake. Right. But yeah, I've seen that lead to so many people yeah. just constantly high twenty four seven. Right. Yeah, and I think, I think with smoking weed too, you, you know, we we all have like high ideas, right? Where we're, we're <laughs> kind of like, oh man, like, yeah, I'm a, what if somebody invented this and like combined it with this and it could change so many lives? And you have all, and but you also, you also, it also can distort the way you view people and those stories that you're telling yourself in your head all all of a sudden they become truths and you 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 kind of you when you're not smoking weed you're like still agreeing with that idea that you had right and and that can be real that was really dangerous for me because it made me think like people were talking about me not not in a paranoid way but just just i would i would have these like narrations going on in my head when I was high and then it would carry over to when I was at work or in a social setting and it cha- it changes you it changes how you're you're speaking to somebody or or um you know just kind of your thoughts on you know your inner dialogue as well so yeah I mean it definitely didn't end well with me because I ended up drinking again um after how did that transition happen? it was it was six years of no alcohol and um, I remember my anxiety getting really, really bad at the time. And, you know, for me, alcohol has always been, um, you know, uh, like a like a, I'm medicating with it, you know, because I don't like the way that I feel sober, you know. And and at the time, like I had been on this, you know, my the the success that I had in the fitness industry when I was in Atlanta, so much of it was through resentment, right? So I, I wanted to prove people wrong and I had this chip on my shoulder. Every other male trainer I looked at as competition and I was just like this loner that like, I'm gonna work harder than you in, you know, working out and I'm going, I'm going to, you know, sell more personal training. My sales are gonna, you know, I I just, everything was a competition and I had this, like, I still had that like anger and, and that, that unhealthy, I think a little chip on your shoulder is good, you know, um, uh, to kind of like remember that, you know, and kind of have it in the back of your mind. But mine was like, you know, the size of a Volkswagen on my shoulder and, I was difficult to be around still, you know, and, and so I had gotten to the point where, you know, like, like when I moved to Atlanta, I was like, all right, I want to, I want to buy a house. I want to get a new car. I want to, I want to have a roster of clients that like people are like, wow, you know, I want some verified social media (laughs) accounts on my, on my personal training (laughs) roster, you know, and, and I had gotten these things. Right. And, it's uh it's 
when you when you're never satisfied and you're never happy through the that process and and journey and and that success is coming from a place of resentment when you finally get things you get those things that you desire it's the most it's the worst feeling in the world you know and there's a there's like an intro to a mac miller song that he says when you you you're like moving towards a mountain and you get there and it's just a pile of rocks and that's exactly how i felt at that moment and because i had i had a condo that i just bought it was on the seventh floor you could see some of the the skyline had hardwood floors great natural light i was training at a small kind of boutique personal training studio that we trained baseball players that were there in atlanta in off season and a bunch of other like kind of noteworthy people and these people that drive fancy cars and i was making more money than i had ever made in my adult life and um you know, and I, I had the girl, I was dating a, a Atlanta Falcons cheerleader. I was like, man, I made, you know, like <laughs> I felt like I made it. Like, you know, I was, and man, I just remember it was a Saturday and I was sitting on my balcony and I, I told myself, I'm going to drink just this once and then I'll go back to being sober, back to being sober. I was still smoking weed, right? And I drank. And I still remember I got like a like a 18 pack of Bud Light or something. And uh, uh, again, like the way I drink, I had two. And then I had ended up having like 10 and I got insanely sick because I had no tolerance yeah, in, in yeah. six years. And I woke up the next day feeling like shit. And I was like, oh man, never doing that again. And, you know, it became a weekly, you know, like once a week? Once a week. Just once a week, you know, and... Was your lady still around? No, we... Uh, okay, so, you, or so you, you guys would have... So, so you reached the pinnacle, you guys broke up, no. and then you were on your porch. Yeah, so the, the girl I moved to Atlanta with, we we uh, we had broken up, and that kind of started me on, like, the smoking weed, single life, kind of, like, going it. out, like, just... This was a new girl. And then this was, like, you know, the girl I kind of, like, settled down with for for a few months or whatever and so yeah her and i we we ended up splitting up and and at that time you know i i i realized at that time that i had no idea who i was i had no idea where i belong and or what my place is and in in the world and you know i was lost man i was 28 years old and i was just totally lost and you know for me up to that point you know it's it's it was that's that was kind of my remedy when I felt that way and um man I you know in my earlier years that I told you about already I it, it, there was a lot of pain involved you know but I had no idea that that was the start of this vicious cycle of addiction that lasted four years you know of in and out of trying to get sober, losing things, losing jobs, losing, fan, you know, losing, you know, it got to the point where my family was no longer speaking to me and I was alone and depressed and I was drinking more and more both in frequency and also the amount in those times that I was drinking. And, 
and then withdrawals kick in and it's a very scary place. It's a and, very and scary that place. cycle started on the porch just with that one conversation that mm-hmm. this eighteen pack, yeah, just one time. Yep. It's all fine. Yep. Um so you know, staying sober, right? It's it's relatively easy to get sober. I think for most people, most people can go into a detox. You're usually there for a week or so. Um, you know, you can even do like a 30 day inpatient program. Most people can get through that with enough attempts and willpower. Right. But staying sober is, is the real battle. And that's where so many people struggle. So for me, it took, I was in treatment the end of 2019 to I was I had two stints if you will uh in in treatment so I it was pr- pretty much a whole year of inpatient and outpatient of basically all of 2020 I was in treatment for for alcoholism so it took that's what it took me I you know and also I moved across the country uh you know, I don't think everybody has to do that, but that's kind of the length that I had to go to to alter my course. So that was a deliberate choice. Why you came to California was to kind of hit the restart button? Yeah, I had been, you know, addiction does so much to a person as far as like, I feel like it deteriorates your soul in a way where you completely forget who you are what you enjoy, your pleasure center is all fucked up because of the amount of, you know, the, the, the do, you know, all the dopamine and the short bursts and the crashes. And I was binge drinking, which is, it was most, the most unhealthy way to drink. Um, because I would, I would go two or three days drinking and then two or three days off trying to sober up run to an AA meeting, call somebody, I need help, I need help, then end up back in my condo alone with my dog drinking. And, you know, when you go through withdrawals, I mean, your, you know, your heart rate is jacked up, you're sweating, um, you're shaking, you know, it's, and you're anxious and you're depressed and you're, you know, suicidal ideation, like all that just, you know, you, you, it just starts consuming you, right? And, I, I can't remember what your initial question was. No, but. you're good. So just you were talking about staying sober and how challenging yeah. it is. I'm curious the mindset of going through those addictive patterns with more of an adult brain being tw- 28, yeah. having money, uh, having the girl. Right. And it, like that in comparison to being younger going through the addiction phase was it was it almost more confusing because you're like wait i was supposed to have it all figured out yeah and here i am on this couch that's a really good know? question yeah that's a that's exactly right it was more challenging to stay sober because i i knew more right i was more aware of just the world in general and how things work and and it was really difficult to have more information and and kind of knew knew I knew what I was up against too to a certain extent, um, but you were still making the wrong decision. That's that's the the thing about you know it becomes it's you feel so shitty when you're sober when you're not using that 
in order just to feel okay to get to a baseline, I had to take a couple drinks. So it's, it's, it almost becomes a survival mechanism, right? Like we're, we're, we're evolved to kind of, you know, and so the, the, the choice is gone. The, the choice of either I'm going to get insanely sick or I can keep, keep going. Right. That those in your mind, that's, that's, that's it. That's the option. What, you know? what is it? Alcohol and benzos are the only two that will actually yeah. kill you if you try right. to withdraw. Right. So I thought I was going to have a seizure. I yeah. thought that I was, you know, I was, I was frightened, man. I was, I was, uh, it was, um, it was a dark time. You know, it was a very, uh, looking back on it, it's like, man, I don't know. You know, that's, that's, that was the start. Just, just the fact that I, I got out of that somehow. That was like the start of kind of like my, my spiritual awakening of like, there's something bigger than me out there at work here because I mean, so many people. And if you, if you're around, um, if you're in treatment long enough and in meetings, AA meetings, you meet a lot of people obviously going through the same thing. And so many people don't get out, man. So many people, you know, you, you almost become numb to it. You get a text, so-and-so overdosed. Man, I didn't even know he was back out, you know, using. I thought he was sober, you know. It's just, and so I think, um, you know, I'm very fortunate that I ha I've been given another opportunity. And, you know, that's kind of why I... I'm trying to live the way that I live now, you know. What do you think that difference is between people that get out and people that fall back? I'm sure it's a That's compilation a good question, of things, man. but That's a good question. just being plugged into that, I mean, and you are, you've lived it, you're currently living it, yeah. and you're on this path when right. there's been people that have been lost. It's I, Does it come down to a certain amount of just, I don't know, like how you think about the world a certain amount of care like my life's actually worth it uh support groups yeah just parents I, it's it's really hard to say i will say though that the i'm very fortunate very very fortunate that i never ex even experimented really with opiates because that now fentanyl right that addiction of people that are abusing heroin is I'm not saying easier than, than dealing with alcohol. I mean, alcohol is, it's, you know, they're completely two, two different things, right? It's the, the, the same disease, but I mean, I would hear stories about somebody that was 19, 20 years old and they were in treatment for the, for a dozen times, you know, 20 times going, there was a, I had a, uh, my first time in treatment, I had a roommate. He had been in detox or treatment, inpatient treatment, 40 times. And he was like 28 years old. And it was, God. and he did everything. You know, uh, heroin, fentanyl, meth. And that addiction, man, and, and the, the, the mental battle with that is so so powerful that 
I, I'm, I, like I said, I'm very fortunate that alcohol was the, the, the one thing that kind of brought me to, to my knees that I had to address. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, alcohol's on every street corner, you know, so you can kind of go back and forth. But um, I think the power of those drugs, though, really leads people to because the thing is, is, you know, I had that mindset, right? Oh, I'm just going to go out. I'm just going to drink this one time. Right. If you're a heroin user and you've had some you've had some time of sobriety and you say, oh, I'm just going to go shoot one bag. The chances of you overdosing are extremely high. That's that's where most overdoses occur is when they're they're relapsing because your tolerance is low. But yeah, that's not the same. That's not a withdrawal. That's like a, that's a poisoning, like up front, like too yeah. much at once. Right. So, um, so yeah. I, like what, I, I don't know if there was a singular moment or a compilation, but after 2020, like being in treatment for, you said it was the end of 20, or 19 into 2020. Yeah. So the pandemic kicks mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Were you in treatment when? The pandemic kicked in? So at the end of 2019, things were, the wheels were falling off. You know, if you think of any, uh, like, film that, like, it's towards the end of the movie, things yeah. are, like, everything's burning down. That's how I felt. Uh, like like I said, my family had cut off communications with me. Um, I really didn't have any, like, my hope was, diminished to the point where I didn't think I was getting out of it. I felt it, it's a scary thing when you start processing your debt, your own death, right? You're, you know, I, I never felt like I could kill myself because I have, you know, I, I wouldn't want to put my mother through that. I wouldn't put, put my sisters through that, my family, people that care about me, but man, I, I really didn't want to live. And I felt this, I felt like death was, imminent and and you start really conceptualizing what it would feel like to not exist and to stop breathing and you know I would picture I would get this like reoccurring thought of what if I died in my sleep who would find me what would happen to my dog you know I it really sick thinking right really unhealthy thinking and and I was still working but I mean, obviously in that state, you can't really be functional, right? I was very miserable when I was not consuming alcohol. And, and so at that point I had a friend that lived in my building and, and, um, and I had called her one night in a blackout and I told her, I, I, I asked her if she had a gun. I don't remember this. And she goes, why, why do you want a gun? I said, I want to blow my fucking brains out. And she called me the next day. I didn't pick up. And again, I, I, I don't remember saying that. And, but she started knocking on my, my door and she came up. She goes, do you remember what you said last night? She goes, you need to get help. You need to get help, you know, and, and, and that was the first time like I, I, I didn't I, I didn't have anywhere else to go, you know. And so fortunately I called um have you ever heard of Chris Heron? He had a thirty for thirty documentary. 
Um, no, maybe so, I'm good with faces. Yeah, so he uh, pull him up. He came. He's from Massachusetts. He grew up in uh, Fall River, Massachusetts, which is a kind of an old mill town. And uh, so he he started the Heron Project. Which so when I first got sober, when I was back when I was 22, he had a book out, and then the documentary came out, and I kind of I always looked up to him. Uh, he was a kid from Massachusetts. He, you know, he was he played for the Boston Celtics, but he was going through. He was addicted to pain pills, and he would like score uh, pain pills outside of the garden, and then go play in the NBA game, drop like 12 points, you know. And wow. um, his story is incredible. I'd definitely check it out. But so I so I knew of him, and he had this uh, foundation, uh, the Heron Project, that helps people get into treatment. And so I started calling you know, filling out the, the, I need help, you know, thing online. And this guy called me and we would go back and forth and, you know, it's still, there's like, you know, there's this duality going on in your mind. Like I need help. I need help. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then like, and then that like voice that, that, you know, whatever you want to call it, the devil or whatever, that evil, that's just like, no, no, keep this going, keep this going, keep this going. You know, just, no, you can you can go a couple more, you know. And So my plan in 2019 was to to go through New Year's, do one last hurrah, and then I'll check myself <laughs> into, yeah, it's just, it's just insanity. That's, a, that's you know, part of addiction is just, just insanity. And um, I didn't make it in that, in, in that um, you know, with my the girl that, that lived in my building, you know, that, that happened. And I, I just, I remember the guy from the Heron project calling me. I'm in this like drunken stupor. He's like, I booked a plane ticket for you. And this guy's got like the heavy Boston accent. This guy, Kevin, I follow him on Facebook now. And so, um, but he's like, pack a bag. You're going to South Florida. I'll buy your plane ticket, you know, whatever, you know? And so I literally just, you know, went on, uh, I got, she, the, the girl gave me a ride, uh, to the airport and she said, I'll watch your dog and uh, shout out to her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Alyssa. Um, she's got married. She's, she, uh, she's got twins on the way. She's doing Dang. really well. She so. might've saved your life. Yeah. We were, we were both going through her, you know, she was dealing with a lot of hard stuff, a lot of, uh, mental issues, right. Uh, mental health issues at the time. And we were kind of there for each other. And yeah, I mean, I mean so much man of my, I think everybody's life, right. Like I believe God puts people in your lives at certain times for a reason. Right. And just, even if they're not, you know, going to be at, you know, somebody's not going to be at my wedding or something or it could be something you know, small, it, man, but still matter. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I really do believe that. And so, um, so how many days between yeah. she comes and knocks on your door after saying that the night before, do you get that call and go to the plane? It was probably a few more days, just a couple of days, and, you know, and I, at that time I was, I lived, uh, you know, on Peach street street and, and, Buckhead, Atlanta. It's a you know a nice part. The bars all around. There's restaurants, and so I had like my little like rotation. I'd go out drinking, and and so that's you know it's holiday season. I don't have my family really at all in my life, so I was just drinking around the clock, man. And I finally somehow just kind of you know again another layer of surrender. Like okay, not only do I need help. But I can't like like I need to go away somewhere, you know, and be like kind of locked up for a while. 
Um, I, I don't, I should not be existing. I can't function in society anymore, you know? And so that was another layer of, and I, you know, I'll never forget. I, I, so my plan was like, I drank, you know, it's like 5 a.m. My flight's at like 9 a.m. 9 a.m. And so my plan was like, all right, drink the rest <laughs> of the beers or whatever, you know, that I have in the house and then go to the airport, <clears throat> kick a few more back. So I don't have to deal with withdrawals. And I got to the airport and I, and I start looking around and I'm like, shit, alcohol isn't served until noon. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started withdrawing uh, as really. I was waiting for the plane on the plane. And it was, it was, it was bad. I mean, I thought I was going to die. What I does that feel like? What happens? Your heart feels like it's, it's, it's going to pull out of your body. It's pounding so hard and you're sitting there and you're sweating and you're, you're like, I had to, I was literally like curled up in a ball, kind of slouched over, uh, in the, at the, in the airplane, um, you know, I, I, I legitimately thought I was going to have to tell the flight attendant to, to land the plane and because I'm going to go into like cardiac arrest or something. I, I had no, I, I really thought like this was it. Like, um, and you know, I never forget. I, like I grabbed the flight attendant and I was like, you need to get me some vodka or some alcohol right now I'm going to treatment. And the people next to me are like this nice, like unassuming couple. They're just like, like, Oh shit, it's happening right now. You know, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, I like, you know, those little, you know, airplane, uh, size. Yeah. Just put a couple of those back and it kind of like took the edge off and that's wild, man. Yeah. And chemistry um, going on there just to, I know. Yeah, good. right. I know. That's that's, yeah. that's kind of where I was at. You know? And again, I never thought that I could would get to that point, right? And that's that's the scary the scary one of the scary things about addiction is you never even if things are bad, you never think that they could get worse. Like the amount of people that would like that I've heard said that they you know they they took oxycotton or oxycodone or another opiate and they're like, Oh, I'll never do heroin. Never. Or, Oh, I, I just, you know, snort heroin or I smoke it. I'm never going to shoot ne- You know, I'm never going to use needles, never be an IV user. And the amount of people that ended up taking that next step, it's, you know, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Oh, I'll never be at the point where I'll have withdrawals from alcohol. I'd stop before that. Right. And it's, it's, again, it's, it's insanity, man. Um, it's not something that I'd, I'd wish upon my worst enemy, you know? So you went through treatment. Uh, so you get to Florida. Yeah. How, how long was your stay there? So I was there for three months. Three months. So um, I had um, overall a very positive experience there. Down in South Florida, it's it's honestly like Orange County and South Florida are like the two uh, recovery hubs in america where people go you got the beach you got palm trees you got you know nice weather for most of the year so um you know i was in uh del mar down in south florida which is near like boca and you know it was beautiful man and um luckily i had insurance i still 
was working for a company that offered me insurance and you know because the other option if you don't if you're uninsured in america and you need you need to go to treatment you're looking at like salvation army or state-run facility that i mean it's it might as well be prison it looks like you know the food that you're giving you know my my older brother went to salvation army okay yeah 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 what was his uh drug of choice he um he was doing everything yeah 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 so we've we've talked about it before on the podcast and Mm -hmm. I'm going to respect my mom's wishes because she's like, you don't need yeah, to keep yeah. bringing that up. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, one of the episodes, we did a deep dive into that, and he's he's kept his sobriety now for a couple years. That's so awesome, man. he's doing good. But Yeah, right on. It's Dude, it's rough. I've seen all of it, yeah. how it affects the family, how yeah. it affects him, just seeing someone at uh, the state on the brink of death. Just, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's wild. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've had friends to your point though, those solutions are out there. If you don't have insurance, there's ways to get help. Right. Yeah. I, um, I've had friends, I've had close friends that I've seen it, seen go through it. Um, but I've never had a close family member, man. And I think that's, uh, and that's this time around my sobriety. I've been able to look at what I've done to my mother, my sisters, my stepfather, you know, like where it's like, man, you know, and, and it's a, there's no other disease that affects, affects the, the people close to the, the person suffering like that. Cause it's you a know? disease relatively speaking of choice. It's not like if right. you get cancer, Right. Unfortunately, like everyone's going right. to be distraught. It's going to be terrible. But there's always, even though I've heard a lot of people argue, yeah. you don't really have a choice right. sometimes when you're in the depths of hell and addiction. Yeah. People still view it from the outside in. You are sure. making a choice. You were doing this to right. yourself type thing. There's know? always that. <clears throat> there's always that debate, right? Is it a choice? Is it a disease? And I, I look at it as a, as a disease, like a, a mental disorder. Um, and very much a spectrum, you know, just like other mental sure. disorders, yeah, right? Like, sure. I think addiction pops up in everybody's life. You know, we were talking about uh, before we started cell phones, right? Like, you know, just being, you can get a, a little addicted, a little addicted to something like Instagram, you know, or whatever, Twitter, anything. Um, and it's, it's, it's everywhere in our lives, you know, shopping, uh, gambling, uh, there's so many forms of, of addiction that, and I think, um, so when you're on that other end of the spectrum where it's like, not just these things that, you know, kind of somewhat negatively affect your life, or if you stop doing this, it could potentially improve your life. You know, when you're life or death, um, you know, that's where the choice is just, it's gone, you know? So what's different this time around? I know you yeah. you uh, were saying it's not just about yourself being sober, but kind of recognizing your family and yeah. a little bit more of the outside. Yeah. But is there something different about this go around? Yeah. Um, that time in treatment, um, you know, obviously I had the right attitude, man. I was, I was done. And um, so... I think initially you asked me, you know, like, was it during the pandemic? So I was in there, you know, and I had a really positive experience down in South Florida where 
they took you through the 12 steps and, um, you know, that process of letting go of the anger and resentment and, and also identifying what you're, what things that you're holding on to that you're carrying around with you is super powerful, man. Like, you know, things from my childhood that I didn't even know that I was, you know, so, so still mad about, you know, and I had resentment towards my father, you know, for not, for not being in my life. And, um, I had a resentment towards God, right. Or, or whatever at the time, I, you know, I was still kind of like fear, figuring you know, out where I stand on that. But I had this, you know, this, this, uh, resentment towards like higher, the higher power, the universe or God, whatever you want to call it. But, and I was able to let go of a lot of that, um, through the 12 steps. I mean, that's like kind of the big, uh, steps four and five are like, you write down everything that you're resentful for. And then, and then you share that list with somebody else. And that process is, was very powerful for me. I also, um, the program there I had, there was a guy, um, one of the guys that led the, um, one of the groups, he would come in and he was, he kind of, all the, all the other, you know, you're in a, in a room with 20 other men and everybody else is like, Oh, this guy, you got to be careful for this one. Like he'll rip, rip right into you. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And he, he had a, he had a gift that he would sit in this, in this circle and be able to identify like who's feeling tense, who's feeling. And the topic of parents came up and he was able to see me. Like, I don't know if I like slid back in my chair or any, or something like that, but he cut into me pretty, pretty deep. Um, about my father and I ended up bawling my eyes out and just in front of these people. And, and again, in the moment I just kind of like shook it off. Like, Oh, I'm just, just really emotional. And, and, and I was, I was because I suppressed an addiction. I suppressed so much. I held back. And when you get sober after a long period of time of, of abusing, alcohol like that it all just comes rushing out so i'd be you know we had like speakers that would come in or AA meetings that would come in and somebody would be talking and they would mention something about their mother and i would just be like i need to leave and like go cry and like smoke a cigarette you know yeah. and it's just so so yeah uh there's moments like that throughout um my and uh i had a roommate so i got into detox <laughs> And, uh, I woke up and you're just completely out of it, hung over, starting to withdraw. And, uh, I wake up and I look over and there's this like big guy, like he's probably six, four and he's got his jeans on, but his, but his ass is hanging out halfway. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my gosh, where am I? What did I do? <laughs> and he wakes up and he like looks over and he's got this big beard and he's got this heavy British accent. And I'm like, like where did I just land you know <laughs> and him and I uh ended up becoming really close while in my time down in South Florida and he told me that he was a um a, uh he studied penguins at the Miami Zoo 
<laughs> what? Right. And he had all these these elaborate stories about penguins, right? Interesting. And uh was he for real, you think, or full so, shit? So and you know, and <laughs> it always was like a little fishy to me. Like I was like, I don't know if this guy's just bullshit. And like, why would he lie though, you know? And then so he it was like day fifty or something, and I was set to leave in like two weeks and he he's he was heading out and going back to his he he lived in Boca. Um <laughs> and he um he pulls me aside and he goes, Joe, we need to talk. I was like, okay. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm actually a, a psychologist. <laughs> I don't study penguins. And I was like, Carl, are you shitting me right now? You know? And and he did it because he didn't want people to to have a different interaction like, wait, or perception. You're a perception, psychologist you know, like, yeah, and you're in here? What's going yeah. on? And so he kind of yeah. like did it to protect himself and so that he could have his best experience possible. And, but him and I were so close, honestly, like some of the talks that we had about anxiety and religion and God. I had grown up Catholic, so I had this all, like, you know, again, a lot of confusion with, with my beliefs as far as spirituality and a higher power goes and that relationship. Again, man, I mean, you know, I mentioned Alyssa earlier, but God put him in my life for a reason, man. And that was like the first time that I wasn't an anxious mess in a really long time. Like I could sit still, I could be with myself. I started meditating. And so, so yeah, overall that, that was, uh, you know, um, you know, that was like my undergrad, right? Like that was my undergrad of getting sober. And then I got out. It was, I remember the day I was flying out was like when Rudy Gobert uh, and Donovan Mitchell and the pandemic kind of started yeah, with yeah. like the NBA shutting down, yep. if you remember that. And that was the day I was flying home. And so I was like, what the fuck's going on? You know, and I got back to Atlanta and. Again, I was in a and I was in a, I was in a place of peace for the first time in a really long time, but I was returning to this environment that I got really sick in. And so I ended up uh going to meetings, but things started shutting down. A meetings were one of the first things to shut down. And I kind of was like I was I was isolated again and I was sober for in total like a month after I got out of treatment. So like four months total. And I had started talking to a, an, a girl again that from my past. And again, it's just like these old behaviors and old environment just crept back in. And I chose to drink again. Um, and it, 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 it wasn't like the time before, you know, with the, the 18 pack at Bud Light. It was like, I picked up right where I had left off four months ago as far as like the amounts. And, and so I was like, great. Like I just pulled my, my way out of hell. I'm 32 years old and just did three months in treatment. And, um, you know, now what, now what do I do? You know? Um, and at that time and like right around the age of 30, I had been using, I started using um, psychedelics and um, I had always like knew I didn't whenever I 
did LSD or took mushrooms, I always felt like I didn't want to be in Atlanta. I didn't want to be in the city. And I had, and so I stopped, you know, I wasn't working at the time, you know, and, and I ended up taking like a hero dose of, of mushrooms. And I, and I, you know, again, and this is mixed in with alcohol though. So it's like really not, it's really no positive benefit, you know? And I felt like I needed to, to get away. I needed to get away, you know? And I had been talking about California. My sister, one of my other sisters moved out here to Santa Monica and I still had never been out here. And I ended up, um, calling the, the, uh, Kevin at the Heron project again. (laughs) Hey, uh, yeah. And he, he kind of talked me in going back to South Florida. And so I was like, okay, yeah, that's what I know, blah, blah, blah. And I got there and I immediately was like, no, this is not, you know, it's not going to work. My intuition. I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) And that positive experience that I I had before I knew it wasn't going to be duplicated again. So I ended up, um, leaving there, checking myself out and, you know, I was calling my mom in the airport. Don't worry. Like I'm going to go back to Atlanta. I'll get an outpatient program. And, you know, this, this, that's the, the cycle of addiction, right? The insanity, you're stuck on this hamster wheel. And the biggest problem when you're there is you think you know best, you know? And so I call Kevin again and he's like, all right, well, I'll find a place in California if that's where you want to go. Because I had this like building, like, yeah, California, California. Something was you over here. Get out of here, you know? Like, yeah, something was pulling me out of here. It sounds insane, I know, but... And so... I ended up uh, getting a flight. My sister, uh, Bridget, she she ended up booking a booking a flight for me out of out to LAX. Headed out. I had another friend watch my dog, and and I ended up in Palm Springs. I didn't even know where Palm Springs was. I had no, I had no idea. And so I woke up. I'm like, holy shit! Look at these mountains. Coachella desert. And I'm like, what is going on? And then. And then uh, somebody told me, like, oh, yeah, it's going to be, like, 100 and 115 degrees. It was in June. June 18th, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2020 yeah. is my sobriety date. And I was like, shit. <laughs> I was like, shit. Um, and so, you know, South Florida was, like, my undergrad. This was, like, my, my graduate. Um, this, this treatment center, they didn't do any 12-step work, but they did a lot of uh, trauma work. And kind of inner child work. That didn't mean I was like, all right, you know, I got there and I was like, all right, let's do this, man. I had my my heels in the sand and and I was like very, you know, you're everybody, you know, is is resistant to to all right, I was just in treatment. I'm going back into treatment. So is it heels in the sand that it's not gonna work? Or heels in the sand that it's like you're missing the lifestyle, like the shit ain't worth it. Yeah, that's 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 the the mental disorder, right? All these people want to work computers wanna, up here. Yeah. It's literally if if your programming gets off, that's right. I was thinking earlier when you were when you were talking about how you got really emotional when hearing certain things. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget what uh, one of my buddies, John Briscoe, said with yeah. people who turn off their emotions through substance. Yeah, 
you need to feel like those mm. ups and downs. Like yes. you need to feel naturally shitty sometimes mm. in order to figure it out. Right. And if you constantly just layer yourself with some substance to to block that out, yeah. Like you were saying, that builds up, it builds up, and then finally when you're sober again, yep. it's all gonna come out. But then you in Palm Springs, you're still recognizing these these patterns of almost a like a broken computer or like a mind yeah. virus in some sort. Absolutely. And it's it takes a lot of work to train those healthy habits again. Yeah. On just how to like interface with the world, how to not be irritable with having conversation or people that you don't like that you know you're right. gonna have to come in contact with or that's what always scares me with my brother personally is just mm. um, when shit hits the fan, when things get rough, Yeah, are you going to be able to handle that and not fall back? Yeah. Because no, inevitably there's going to be things to come exactly. and it's like, what's your capacity to deal with mm -hmm. that, you know? Absolutely. So what happens in Palm Springs? What? So, um, yeah, it was it was different. It was it was set up much much differently, um, and again, just just a lot of resistance at first, and they made you do this this project. It was called the trauma egg, right? And <laughs> you basically get this. You know, it's uh, what are they called? Uh, like you used to make like a. Like where you draw on like arts and crafts yeah, type stuff? Yeah. And you have to draw an egg. Okay. And then you you write down like all your trauma. And it's like a stencil of some sort. And, you know, up until that point I was like, Oh well, the only trauma that I've had in my life is my my dad died. Other than that, I have no trauma, you know, and especially, you know, you start comparing your trauma to other people, right? You hear somebody that was sexually abused or you know, they, both their parents died tragically or, you know, they, whatever, you know, the, the, you hear about these horrible stories and you start, you start kind of being like, well, oh man, my, my stuff's not that bad, but that's not how we operate as humans. Right. Like, um, well, it's, it seems like the outcome's still the same after the equal sign, you're both still there no matter what happened. Yeah. Like, is there some truth to that? Like you're still you're in the same spot dealing with addiction. Right. Like th that's what's come out of all of it, no matter right, right, how right. bad your past was. Necessarily. Right. Yeah. And I, I think to, to your question earlier of like, why don't people get, some people don't get out of it. It's a lot of it has to do with just this, the cars they were dealt. Like it's just, it's so difficult to overcome and, let go of some of that trauma, you know? Um, so the past does matter then, like in terms yes, of the, yes. the variance of what you went through, I, I it might so. make it harder once I mean, you're actually I, there. Yeah. I think every trauma leaves like a, an emotional scar, right? And, uh, or wound even if, it, if left untreated, you know, and if somebody's just been gashed their, their whole life, essentially, um, it doesn't mean they can't over, I mean, we hear about stories all the time, you know, of people overcoming these, this, these odds. And, um, I mean, one thing it definitely makes you grateful, which is a, which is a good thing, right? You, there's always somebody with a worse story than you, you know, um, no matter what your story is. So, and, and again, I'm like, this is bullshit. I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm an AA guy. 
I want to do the 12 steps. Like, I don't want to, you know, that was kind of, uh, that's, you know, the, the negative, uh, attitude always kind of comes out first when I'm, when I was trying to get sober. And, and I also combined with having to like face and, and look at what, what is classified as trauma and what has affected me and why I am the way that I am. I had a therapist, you get placed typically in treatment, get placed with like a therapist and you meet with her twice a week or something like that. And, and I had this woman that was, um, you know, she burned sage and, um, you know, had the, the essential oils that, you know, you'd run with a little lavender and you would do, um, you know, deep, deep breathing where she would describe before the session, like she would describe like the white light and the, you know, all this stuff. And, um, and I, I had a, at that point, you know, and, and this is where I think like, you know, my, you know, with psychedelics and, um, you know, weed and I had, I had an open mind and so I was very like open to this woman and of like this, she could like really help me. And we did a lot of work on, on, uh, again, my father and, um, my family, we had a, uh, there was a meeting set up with my family, a Zoom call, where they were able to share what my addiction has done to them. And that was well, that was tremendously, obviously emotional, but therapeutic to me. Um, we did like a, uh, I forget what ceremony, but you like write a letter to your, like I wrote a letter to my father and, and then we went and burned it. And she, you know, and you were able to say things like what, what, like you, I was able to speak to my father and, and it's like, like far out as the sounds, it was, it was super helpful to me because it was stuff that I've never faced. I was 32 years old, you know, and just holding on to that, that weight. And so going through that with her and she also saw potential in me and she saw the ambition in me that I had kind of forgotten about because I, I hadn't seen it since I like moved to Atlanta and I was hustling and grinding and that's a whole nother side of me you know and she helped me kind of lay out a plan like without telling me don't go back to Atlanta uh, it's probably the, the, the door's probably shut there unless you want to keep doing this and you can do like a lot of st positive things with your life. And she's like, have you ever been to Orange County? You know, like she kind of was like, <laughs> no way. You know, fitness is kind of a big deal there, you know? Like, <laughs> and so she, she guided me, she guided me. And I ended up doing that stupid ass trauma egg and you present it in front of 40 <laughs> people. And you're like, uh, and man, it was just, I had, I had a spiritual experience there and I'll never forget. Like after you do the, the, the trauma egg, after you present, you sit in a chair and you get feedback from all your peers and the, the owner of the, the facility was there. His name's Ken Seeley. He does, he's been on uh, the A&E show intervention and he told me, he's like, you know, don't, don't hold back on the things that you can do with your life. Like don't sell yourself short at all. When you are like picturing 
and he made me do this this exercise of pretend that the person uh, you five years from now is sitting in front of you and talk to that person and ask them where like how did you get there what does that look like and he's like when you're when you're setting goals do not do not put any limits on on what you can do and that was that was a huge part of and and, and it still is today why I was like I was like excited about life for the first time in a long time and and that experience in Palm Springs it 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 saved my life man it really did because you know after you you go to treatment treatment it's like all right well what's and you don't stay sober. I was like, fuck, man. Like, I, I can't keep doing this. You know, you, you lose your cell phone. You're not making any progress. You don't have any income. You know, I'm getting money loaned to me. Like, I, I, you know, so I'm seeing men that are 50 years old that are are in there. And I'm like, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't. So. So it sounds like the why has to be big enough. So he was kind of yeah. pulling this why out of yeah. you. Yeah. And given that you do have this talent, like, you know, you've trained these people X, Y, and Z. You've had this mm. apartment, like you've been able to produce X amount for yourself, right. but addiction kind of swept all that away yes. from you. And this is just another opportunity. You're, you're blessed with calling. Um, who's the gentleman that set you up in Florida again? Yeah. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. Yeah. You're, you're blessed with family loaning you yeah. items and whatever that mm-hmm. is. But you're then you, you hear this statement from the owner at the Palm Springs facility. Yeah. D- did that really have an impact on like your why? And then in combination with the gal who t- tells you about Orange County and yeah. it's just all of those different elements in the pool kind of lead to right. not like a breakthrough moment. It's just like, OK, here I am now. There is actual light at the end of the tunnel. I can do something with my life. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're deep enough in addiction, you're you're hopeless. You know, hopelessness sets in, and you forget who you are. You forget. You forget. You can't. You know, I mentioned like uh, not liking myself earlier, and you get in this self hatred that you forget, like that. You don't think you have anything positive to f- offer the world. There's just so much loathing of who you are and the decisions and the things and your choices and your actions. that. And so when you start to gain some hope back and you start to s- remember who you truly are. Like A little who, momentum. Like what your true self is. That just started giving me like my, my and you know, you're, you're, I wasn't, I was barely eating you know, for months at a time when I was drinking, I'd go to Chick-fil-A and, you know, stop at the gas station to get more booze, you know, like that was just like enough fuel to like, just make sure I don't get, you know, really sick. And so, you know, you start eating again, you start getting on a sleep schedule again, you go to bed early, you wake up and, you know, you, you don't feel like absolute death and, um, you know, you're hydrated, you're not on a constant state of dehydration anymore. Um, so yeah, it was momentum. Um, I made the decision to to. I was so the the game plan was find a sober living in either L.A. or Orange County. My sister was up in L.A. 
and go back to Atlanta, pack up my shit, sell my, put my condo on the market and move to California. And so like, that was it. (laughs) That was it. Yeah. I went and I looked, you know, I went and visited my sister and I, I was, I was in LA for like 30 minutes and I was like, Nope, (laughs) no, no, no. Like I'm done with the big cities. You know, I was in the middle of Atlanta for, for a long time and, I didn't. Yeah, good thing I, you ended up here. I love. I loved Orange <laughs> County. Yeah, yeah, because you know, there's there's stuff going on here, but it's not like the hustle and bustle of a of a major U.S. city, you know. And so, decided on Orange County. Got uh, there was a sober living that was recommended to me. That you know, you you go, you live in the sober living, you do a, a outpatient program for uh, you know a couple months as you kind of get back on your feet, and then. And so, yeah, that's what I did. I, you know, I took a flight back to Atlanta, packed up, you know, that brought, you know, to the, to the social media posts that you pulled up. I, you know, I I sold or threw away pretty much everything I had. And I had a little, uh, like the Cherokee sports, the Jeep Cherokee sports and, you know, packed up my stuff. You know, I planned out my trip. I was going to stop in, uh, was it Oklahoma City first or something? You know, like 11, 12 hours of driving yeah. a day. I'll make it in three days. And, and uh, yeah. Just you and the dog? Just me and my dog. And, um, you know, my family were were kind of wary. You know, they were worried about me. And, like, I know. know that feeling, dude. It's yeah. um, from the outside in. Yeah. It's like you got to earn the respect Absolutely. back. Because we're, all we could do is pick up on patterns. For sure. But it seems like this pattern, so you're in the car, you're coming yeah. to Cali. So how do you get involved in the fitness community in Orange County? Yeah, so that was, uh, so, you know, it's October, uh, August of 2020, so things were still shutting down. You know, it's when in that period when, like, things would open up. Open Everybody's up, like, shut down again. And then, like, yeah. they'd be like, yeah. So uh, I got out there. I... I was unsure that I was going to get back into fitness. I really didn't know if that was the right move. I had worked so hard to like, it's, it's a hustle to make it in fitness. You know, it's, it's a hustle to make like a full-time career out of it. And just like anything else, I guess. But I I just didn't know if I still had the passion for it. And so um, I got into the outpatient program and you're not allowed to get a job for like the first 30 days. You know, it's like recommended and kind of enforced to, to make sure that your sobriety comes first. And um, if you remember Amy, Amy Green. Yeah, yeah. Right? So she. Shout out Amy Green. Yeah, shout out Amy Green. She, so I went to this place called Buckeye Recovery, um, which is a, a, a great outpatient program. And they're aligned with the Ohio House, which is the sober living that I was living in. And so I was doing the outpatient program and in walks, you know, we had like a Monday noon meeting or whatever, a group and in walks this like super fit chick. And she's here to talk about fitness and health. And I was like, all right, well, okay, <laughs> what is this shit? You know? And, uh, you know, she obviously has, uh, she has great energy and, and, um, you know, she, she mentioned motion fitness and that's where I work. And, so of course, like you know, my confidence is starting to come back and get my swagger back. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking for looking for a job, and she's like, 
She's like, you're like two months sober, aren't you? Didn't you just get here? You know, she's like, will you chill out, bro? <laughs> but, uh, but her and I kind of. Just kinda, like Amy would say. Yeah, right away we were, we, we, we clicked. And um, so that was like the start of that. And she invited me. I met, um, you know, I went and took Ryan's class and, you know, went into motion. And, I, you know, eventually met all, you know, Scott, Kenny and, and um, all those guys. And, but I still wasn't sold on like, first you know they didn't have a, a a job to offer me at the time and, and I, was, I was like thinking i'd get into sales you know it's kind of like you know you're in california everybody's driving a tesla you hear about the housing you know you're like oh, maybe i gotta get like find a job that i can like make some real money you know and so like i started like taking interviews for like sales jobs and entry level and i'm just like man and then i had i had like you know if you go on like indeed you can do like, or, or zip recruiter, you can do like one click, uh, apply yeah. to jobs. Application yeah. Uh-huh. And so orange theory came up and I did like a, a quick, like, yeah, okay. Apply, whatever. And then this guy called me, he's like, Hey, we're doing a, a open mic audition down at the Newport orange theory. Like, if you want to <laughs> come by? I remember he left a voicemail. I was at the beach and I was like, eh, whatever. And then for whatever reason, like Monday, like it was on a Friday and on, on Monday and the audition was Tuesday, I call him back and I'm like, I'll just go, let's check it out. Probably won't do anything with it. And I go and you're, you know, you're in this room, you're in the, the studio with the Orange Theory studio with 10 trainers. And <clears throat> I was the last one to go and I was like super nervous. I was like, man, I haven't been nervous in a long time. Like, yeah, this, you know, yeah. you know, and sober. And so man, I got on the mic and that was the first time I ever did like anything on the mic. Cause all the group training I did in Atlanta was just like, you know, regular kind One of on like camp. And I, I've done group training, okay. but not like the on mic where you got it, like, where that's like yeah. a whole nother kind of skill set. And, <clears throat> and the feeling of like being in front of people like that. And I was like, I was just not thinking I was in the flow, just, just like on my shit, man, just like making people laugh, like, you know, encouraging people. I had nothing, I had knew nothing about Orange Theory though. You know, there was all these like, the other people were trying out were like knew all the lingo. And I, I was like, I have no idea, but, um, you know, they saw something in me and, you know, you end up, they, they go through, you go through a training with them and shout out Orange Theory though, because they do a great job of teaching you how to be on the mic and, that was like my training for eventually going into motion. And so you got the job. So I got the job. Yeah. Yeah. I was working at the, uh, the CDM location and the Newport location. It was great, you know, but I also missed, uh, the creative side. Like I love like kind of like the artistic side of designing workouts and being able to improv and, you know, really like feel like you're like yourself up there. And, you know, you're kind of like following a script and, following the workout to a T that they give you there, which I, I, I'm a big fan of orange theory. Like I think uh, the workout's great. It's very accessible to like all different people. Um, but yeah, so it helped build you up too to where you're at now. Absolutely. You got some no, experience that you're that able to me, apply. That was like, you know, like my, uh, my minor leagues, you know, like, or whatever, you know, or, or <laughs> yeah, that's like motions, big yeah. leagues. Shout yeah. Out, I mean, shout out yeah, motion for sure, man. Um, <laughs> And so I, I ended up, um, motion, you know, Ryan went down to San Diego to open up that one. And so there was a space, there was an opening. They had a, they had a mic audition. I'm like, Oh, great. Another one of these like auditions. What is with California? Like, it's like, so did you seek motion just from the, not complacency, but you wanted something new. So you 
were dabbling in other opportunities yeah. while at Orange Theory? I, you know, I missed um, doing one-on-one training. And like I said, I missed, like Orange Theory was great, but there was, I always like to, and I think most people succeed when there's growth potential, right? When For there's, sure. There's something, oh, you could obtain in the future or you can progress in this way. And in Orange Theory, you got to teach a lot of classes to become like a head coach. And that's, you know, still kind of capped on your potential. And and so I knew like I was kind of exploring like, all right, where else could I go? <clears throat> I had been to a lot of the other studios in Orange County and the popular ones. And um, and so, yeah, they had the the on mic training same similar setup how did you find that out through amy or did uh, through you call? social media through social oh no media. way so you yeah. were following them and so yeah like because i had met amy earlier on i had kind of somewhat of an in like i knew you know all the all the owners there and i you know i was able to um follow them and, and everything i've taken to work i kind of knew what they were about just just based on how i met amy so yeah so i went in and just crushed it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you when you first started, yeah. I took a couple of your classes. And yeah. It's like, oh, this new guy, Joe. Take right. a couple of his classes. Right. Not yeah. knowing this entire backstory. Like, my mind's yeah, blown because yeah, yeah. this is the first time we've actually, yeah. like, sat down in long form and right. have connected like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you from, like, the amazing workouts you put people through and not just programming but being on the mic and, and being like that. Yeah perfect motivator mm -hmm. and where you're not pushing or making anyone feel bad. I mean, all you guys are incredible at yeah. motion and with your own personalities, but yeah. Um, and now hearing like you're an entire, your entire story and there you are at the podium leading everybody like, dude, it's powerful. It's yeah. really, really yeah. cool. Thank you, man. It's yeah. uh, there's going to be so many people listening to this too. Yeah. Just tripping out. I'm like, wow, yeah, I've only known, <laughs> Joe on the mic and there's this yeah. incredible backstory and success story and yep. going from being an employee and a, just a, a trainer yeah. to now you're, you're a partner, right? So you, so you have, you have this, this ceiling that's kind of non-existent. Like that right. gym right. has endless opportunity and you guys do like incredible yeah. stuff there. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a. So, it's what's been that a, been like? Just being truly, you were a part of the team from the beginning, mm -hmm. but now you have this this goal to to strive for as yeah they a man they really welcomed me in with open arms, you know. And at the time, I was probably eight or nine months sober, so I was still, you know, still. There's still, I mean, you know, you you described it with you know your brother as far as like you know you're you know, you have to, you have to earn some trust and, you know, uh, Amy kind of vouched for me and, um, but they, they, I was shown nothing but love when I, the, the day I walked in there and, um, from everybody that works there and they saw something in me. I still remember, you know, right after the audition, Scott came up to me and, um, was like, Hey, uh, what do you want to do with your life? Like, grab me. <laughs> what do you want to do? You want to own? You want to own one of these someday? I was like, oh yeah, man, let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> like, I'm ready. Like, whatever you need me to do, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, and best. and um, you know, the those guys, all of them, man. Uh, Kenny, Ryan, 
and Scott have been mentors to me in a lot of ways, you know, um, you know, and again, like I, I, I'm a big believer of like timing. Timing is so key, man, you know, like, and, and patience, timing and patience are these two things that, you know, we, we like, it's so healthy to have ambition and want more things. And, but if you're not patient and you're forcing, it doesn't end well. It typically doesn't end well when you're, you're forcing the issue, but there, there also still needs to be like an underlying uh, persistence in moving towards something to achieve something new or goal, right? So it's that fine line um, that I think motion really allowed me to um, see myself at the right time, right? Because I was finally in a place of, I had to move from self-hatred, self-loathing, to uh, I'm okay, to self-liking, right? And to like some, to to some genuine self-love. And the timing of motion as a company, being able to pull somebody like myself in there and me being in that place, I was finally able to see who I am to what, what you just described, right? I was like, I was not in a place mentally or spiritually for people, for, for, to be able to view that, if that, that makes sense. No, it does. And being on the other side, right? Like the customer side and hearing you on the mic, not knowing your, the full scope of your being, but just there, there was something special there. Yeah. And, all we could do is pick up on patterns. Like I think life is very difficult because everything comes down to patterns, like not just recognizing patterns, but keeping healthy habits and sustainability life short, but it's not that short. We all know how long sometimes it could feel. Right. And the reason why I bring that up is through recognizing people, you up there just, the, the words that were coming out of your mouth and then hearing that you have dabbled in different psychedelic experiences, mm. which I don't think is healthy if you're addicted to always doing that. Totally. But I think there's benefits in terms of open-mindedness mm-hmm. and having like a healthy level of spirituality yeah. where you can talk about energies and, you know, it's not like fitness and connecting with people. It doesn't always have to be, um, you know, like the typical military-like setting. You should have a little bit of like hippiness per se to your persona. Right. And, and I was like, well, like not knowing anything about your addiction story, you brought yourself to a point of self love enough self confidence. I mean, just to get up on the mic, that's Mm. nerve wracking for a lot of people. A lot of people wouldn't be able to do that. You might be able to train yourself over time, but, um, the value that you're now able to provide yeah. So it, it, the timing's beautiful. I think just the concoction of human beings under that roof right. is like something super special. For sure. Like I've never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah. And then, so you have the people element, but then the actual product element, yeah. which at the end of the day is why everyone's there. It's to provide a service to the community and yep. bettering people through fitness and developing these healthy habits. Mm-hmm. That 
we kind of, I touched on it a little bit with Scott, just the patience of growing the business. Sure. But yeah. I, I think that business scaled just brings so much goodness to the world. Yeah. Like you're not going to be able to change the entire world, but mm. microcosms of these communities and the people that go in there. And if, if you're like, I'm just speaking from my point of view, like if, if you are taking it seriously, if you're going there to better yourself yeah. and, and develop a better balance, like you don't have to be a seven days a week, crazy yeah. fitness buff, but just to go there, you guys provide this experience of, it's not just about the weights. It's not just about burning calories. It's truly like you start off with, why are you here? You always mm -hmm. say what, like set your intention. Right, why are you right, here? Right. Why are you doing this workout? And do those convert that helps so much yeah. when you're having a shitty day at work, mm -hmm. when you're going through anything as if you set your intention before bringing in that like 50 minutes of struggle, sure. like true struggle but you find so much worth and growth in that. Absolutely. So because it's not my line of work at all. Yeah. Like what I'm curious finding strength in that, like what it does for you as not just trying to overcome and continue your sobriety and overcome addiction, continue your sobriety. Um, d does it give you like great strength to know that, it's not just about you anymore. Like you are actively doing this for all these people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, and the scale at Motion Irvine that we, we do it at, I mean, it's, you know, I, it, you do it enough and you kind of forget like oh, how many people you have the potential to, to impact, you know, and every day before I go, you know, I teach Tuesday, Thursday mornings, you know, it's early morning, it's dark out and kind of strolling in there and you know I always try to I always try to stay say set my attention you know through prayer and you know God give me strength to to help people today and 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 it's just a reminder to make it about other people you know and um you know I think I've been blessed uh with with empathy you know and and, and to really be able to kind of put myself in other people's shoes and and I think that's definitely an underrated skill as a trainer because, you know, when you can when you can kind of feel somebody is is going through something, and and you know you can pick them up through your whether it's your words and it might not even be speaking you could be speaking to the class or, but you have the ability to, to to lift them up, and and for me teaching those classes. I want it to be a, a sanctuary for people. I want, I, I, and that's why I say those like, Hey, this is your last chance to think about any of the bullshit that you're, you're dealing with outside <laughs> of here yeah, yeah. because the next 50 minutes, we're going to be mindful. We're going to be aware of our body and our breathing because I want people to go in there and, and have that be like therapy, man. Like that, because that's what it's done. For, you know, that's, that's how I treat it as, you know? Yeah. And it's a solution for the reality of modern life. Yeah. Like, especially in first world countries mm -hmm. in Orange County, our lives are built around industry that puts you in a desk yeah. that asks certain requirements of you. It's like, right. we're not out working the fields or having like all of this physical activity throughout our day to where yeah. that product, that solution you guys are providing. Right. It's, 
it's a necessity. Yeah. Like I truly believe that. And it, it ties back into movement being a cure for a lot of problems with people abusing medication Absolutely. or just maybe not living their best lives, not feeling their best. Mm -hmm. It's hard sometimes to like push yourself over the edge to walk into a gym, like whatever gym it may be. Sure. But your body, like your biological being needs to be pushed sometimes. Absolutely. Like you need to have a certain level of output. Yeah. And then do it consistently. Like give yourself the respect of like give it some time. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it, it's that healthy addiction to where you're not going to feel right unless you have right. X amount of activity in your life. Because yeah. that's how we were made. That's how we're designed. Yeah. You can't be a couch potato and expect optimal happiness. Right. Like right. it's just yeah. not possible. Yeah. So any sort of gym, that whole industry is providing a product and service like that. But motion in particular adds in the, like the community element, the sure. community feel, which is a whole thing in itself. Like group right. classes have that on average, but like when you're looking over and you're seeing everyone struggling and kind of going mm. through the same things, everyone's doing the same stations. Yeah, yeah, Some yeah, people yeah. are modifying a little bit, but right. if you're there, the intention's set. Like when you leave, even though let's say you're physically exhausted, if you push yourself, like you at least did that for yourself today. Absolutely. And if your boss yeah. shits on you, if you have this problem, if you, right. whatever's going on, at least you did that for yourself. Yeah, I think connection is just, we all need a certain amount of it. And you got so many people working from home now. And Zoom's not the same. Zoom no. Zoom doesn't it's, cut it's it. Not, yeah, like, it's not in person. It's better. Um, and, I mean, for me, I get so much of my connection from that gym. I mean, I met, I met my girlfriend there. Um so many of my of the social things that I do are out are from with people from motion um and you know it's it's funny because I'm I'm very introverted I'm very you know I I enjoy being alone I but I know dealing with addiction right I too much alone time can get me into trouble right and I'm in my head and you know and so for me, motion has been like that amount of connection that I get teaching three classes in the morning. It's, it's everything, man. I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously helped, helps me stay sober, but it's, uh, it's, it's nothing but love. You know, when I go in there yeah. with so many people, man, like I have like these great relationships with and, um, you know, and it, and it ties in with the, the timing thing, right? Because you can't go into an environment like that. If if you're internally struggling a lot and you're and there's not obviously like I have my days like everybody else. But if if you're having that conflict within yourself and you go in front of that many people. And you, you're not able to get in the moment and be in, in kind of that flow state while you're while you're teaching there's no way those people that you're leading are going to be able to get there. And that's, you know, that's my goal. That's, you know, yeah. I, I want them to uh, kind of find that space, even if they've never experienced it, you know? Um, and so it's this yin and yang thing for me, 
at this point where, you know, people come up and thank me. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like I need this, you know, no, this, there's is, some this is so healthy yeah. for me, you know. There's kick-ass clients there too. Like the yeah. people are good. It, right. You guys, the owners and trainers are yeah. incredible, but the people there are great. Yeah. But I pose that same question to Scott because it's challenging. You guys are humans and have your ups and downs too, but being on the mic, like being in front of all these people constantly, yeah, you, that that must be hard sometimes. Because, like, I'm sure sometimes you got to put on a face, or you got to sure. you have to project positivity when you might not always feel that way inside. Because yeah. you're at the center, you're describing the workouts, everyone's tuning into you, right? But are you able to like get in that flow state where it's almost like an escape for you to just for sure there yeah i mean i always feel better after teaching even if i'm tired or you know i'm 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 really sore myself or you know i got something going on outside of there i go in there and and uh yeah i always feel better after after the class but yeah it, it it's you know you're giving you know to to bring up the introvert extrovert i once heard somebody say that you know an introvert their their bank account is full in the morning when they wake up and then they spend all their cash with every interaction that they have. And an extrovert is empty and they're filling up their bank account with every, right. So I feel like, you know, I, you know, I think I go in there and I, I have my, my, my bank account full and I'm dishing out cash, you know, as much as I can. And then I definitely need that time to, to pull back, you know, and, my my girlfriend who I, I love very much and um she's she's extroverted. <laughs> she's extroverted. We're 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 our our good balance. Uh, yeah, we are. Good we really balance. do balance each other out be each other out quite a bit. But you know, the co- all the core values and, and beliefs are there and we we share that and we have that like really strong foundation. But she loves to be social. She and you know she works from home some days. She's only in the office. She's not with without a lot of interaction. And so you know we had to learn to like, hey, I just taught, you know, two classes on a Saturday, 120 people in two hours. Like, just give me, you know, we'll do something this weekend, but give me, give me some time. You know, <laughs> let me take a nap or go work out myself or go for a walk or whatever. Yeah. And um, you know you learn to to kind of ref, refill and. Um, if you love it, you, you'll find a way to like figure it out. Um, for sure. You know, initially it's like, you know, you're drinking, like I was like drinking two Celsius, you know, and, and like I, I didn't, you know, I didn't balance it very well, but you kind of learn to, to go with the ebbs and flows. Yeah. Too much caffeine could be a bitch, man. Oh man. I, we I, were talking uh, about that once in class, yeah. just if you're over caffeinated sometimes. Yeah, totally. I, uh. It's a drug, man. It is. <laughs> so knowing me, like I'll take something and <laughs> like if, if I like the effects, then uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably overdo it at some point, you know, but. Dude, um, what a, what a journey. Absolutely, man. And you recently just ran a uh, marathon. Yes. Yeah. So you ran a half. On. You yeah. you mentioned that what years back, but yeah, I've run uh, trained for a full. I ran um, about three halves. And then, um, yeah, took on the full 
Went through a full training cycle. And <laughs> Bro, what was your uh, time, your average mile time on the it marathon? It was uh, 306, 22 or something like that, 306. Yeah. So, like, the, the miles broken down, what was it uh, per mile uh, The pace on was average? 706. That's insane. Yeah. We're at 706 <laughs> per mile for how many miles is it? 26.2, yeah. 26.2. That's yeah. insane, dude. Yeah. And you're still carrying, like, mass, too. You're not, yeah. you're not like, one of the super skinny right runners so yeah that's, yeah i ran that at one tough. i was 197 the morning of the marathon damn so did you yeah. carb load the night before or what <laughs> yeah i did yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um how was that what was that experience like it's it was it was great man so i um you know i've, I've told my girlfriend this and i haven't really shared it with many people but it was uh, my two-year anniversary my sobriety birthday right um on the day before father's day and then um, so that was Saturday. And, you know, that's always a time where you kind of like reflect of where you're at, where you came from. You know, you, you, you kind of when you're in that day to day grind and trying to get better and, you know, um, kind of moving forward, you forget about where you came from somewhat. And so that that reflection of of two years sober and then the next day, Father's Day, I was like, I'm going to go for a run, you know, just. I've been trying to do more things where I think of my father and, and, and honor him in a way, whether it's, you know, I, was, I, was, I ran back bay, I ran 10, the 10 mile loop. And that's been really healthy, healthy for me just to, to know that he's, he's watching over me and that I'm, I'm doing everything I can to make him proud. And, and so I, I did the, did the loop and I was like halfway through and I had this like, I need to do something more, you know, like I had this like intuition, this intuitive thought of you should run a marathon. And I've always wanted to run a marathon growing up in Massachusetts, Patriots day, the day that they run the Boston marathon is a, is a state holiday and schools are out and it's a Monday in April. And, and so I've been saying like, Oh no, I can't, I don't want to lose my muscle mass or, you know, like I made every excuse, right? Like, Oh, I can't commit to running that much. I can't get hurt or, and, um, yeah. And so I, I went back to my apartment after running those 10 miles and thinking about my dad the whole time. And I told my girlfriend, I said, Hey, I'm going to run a marathon. She's like, what? She's like, Are you serious? You know? And I've done some other challenges, you know, I've told you about the, uh, like the Goggins, uh, yeah, four yeah, by yeah. Four, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, so I just felt like it was just time and, you know, I just kind of dove into it and, um, you know, the training is, uh, is fun. You know, I, I think if anybody's going to do it, you got to find some other people training, um, cause long runs get really long. You're out there for two and a half, three hours at a time running. Um, so I was able to link up with some, some guys and, um, we, we trained together on long runs. They just, they actually just ran the, the DC marathon, the Marine Corps marathon this past weekend and they crushed it. And, um, that was super helpful having, you know, kind of, and I, and I've always prided myself like, Oh, I'll suffer in solitude, you know, like I don't need anybody, <laughs> you know, and, but it was super helpful having them. And, um, you know, the, I, I totally underestimated the anticipation, you know, cause like, two weeks prior you're like you go to go to bed and you're like laying in bed and you're just oh my gosh like what if I this happens or that you know and then you can't sleep and like you know and I, I put a lot of pressure on myself I'm hard on myself um 
I think in a healthy way, I think it's good to kind of keep yourself in check as long as it's, it's still from like a place of love and knowing that you're meant for more and yeah, just wanting to do your best. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of always put that pressure on myself and so yeah, the lead up was, you know, and and then you you go through a taper. So you, you, you build for basically, you know, close to three months. And then the last two weeks you start cutting back recovery, cutting into those miles that you were doing. I was up to 45, 50 miles a week. And so you start cutting those out and then you have all this free time. You're not moving as much and you're kind of like irritable. And, you know, so the last week is miserable. That was like the worst part of the training because you're just like sitting there and, and then, you know, race day comes, comes along and man, that's just the fun. It's fun, man. I I love the, you know, the buildup and, you know, you, you get out there and, you know, um, just being around that many people too. I mean, I think there was 2000 people running the, uh, the full marathon and then quite a few, like, like tens of thousands running the, the, the half. And so you're in that environment and, um, and those last four miles were, were, were tor- torture <laughs> for sure. Like really, really brutal, but I think it's a good place to go to every once in a while. And, you know, I made it through and I had, you know, I had the motion, uh, crew, like a lot of them yeah, were, yeah, were down there cheering me on my girlfriend, my sister from Santa Monica was there. The one that drove me to airport and, yeah. and, uh, to, um, she drove me from the airport to Palm Springs, you know, so she gets to see me do something like that now. And so those moments are, are special, man. And, um, yeah, Grant, pull that up on his Instagram. I think he's got, you've got a photo, right? Are you finishing? Yeah. 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 Right there. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, mid race, mid shot, <laughs> quad screaming. The quad, yeah, you got to get those tiny shorts, man. It, <laughs> it feels like you're naked out there. It's incredible. Yeah, you're just you're just free. You know, you don't want anything Dude. weighing you down. You know, <laughs> from, from where you've come from and all the struggle you've yeah. overcome yeah, to <laughs> to performing at that level, yeah. it's like you're, you're blessed with a certain type of genes sure, too, yeah. right? To be able to yep. to produce this outcome, yep. but still just the mental toughness and yeah pushing yourself to get it done for sure setting those goals get achieving them and then is there a difference now with you were talking about before when you achieved that success in Georgia and then it left you feeling yeah underwhelmed and just unhappy and now in in sobriety are the the check marks is it starting to feel like really fulfilling yeah like it's sustainable um, I think the process of surrender, right? You, you're you're hit with a a heavy dose of humility. When something like addiction brings you to your knees and you and you beg for help and and you admit that you are powerless over a substance and that you need other people in your life that you can't do this on your own and that process is so humbling that it it helps dissolve the ego, you know, where highs, like when I have a win, whether it's running a marathon or I get promoted at work or I make more money in a month, it, it doesn't go to my, like I don't, I keep my head down during those times where I don't really, you know, obviously I think things, certain things are worth celebrating in life, but 
I think it's uh, knowing that there's certain things, there's, there's no end game to certain things. You know, there's no, like, cool, I ran a marathon. Like, what do I want? Like, uh, do I want, like, the pre president of the United States to acknowledge that and, like, win an award? Like, what? Like, you know, like, I chose yeah, I to gotcha. do this. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, so, and, and, and there's always going to be setbacks and there's always going to be times when, like, everybody has blind spots where, you know, my ego is going to creep back in and these old kind of character defects are going to, become relevant again and um and there's going to be new opportunities to 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 maybe i'll do a ultra marathon or uh you know whatever um an iron man you know that's what everybody's asking me now like oh you're gonna do <laughs> I'm like, man like, come on that's not enough you know like but uh yeah so i think the highs don't feel so I'm not patting myself on the back anymore, yeah, man. That's, it's all part of the journey. It's, it's yeah, but it's also like me recognizing like I'm nothing without God and I'm nothing without the people that surround me, you know, um, and the people that love me and that, that believe in me and that have been there for me. Like I'm nothing without them, man. And before it was, it was like, I took, I wanted not only did I want the credit, but I want, I was going to tell you that I deserve the credit, you know? And, you know, I, I still struggle with bad days. I still struggle with those days that you're just not feeling it, which is normal. Um, I struggle with when I get sick because it reminds me of withdrawing from alcohol in those days. And, um, but again, like I know it's temporary. I know it will pass. I know I have so much to be grateful for and, I have so much more potential and things that I want to accomplish. And so to get back to that, that question, like when I, when there's a success, I guess I'm, en I'm enjoying the journey and I'm, I, I have less, less ego involved and, and more humility and, and, and more trust in God that, um, you know, that this is just the beginning. Beautiful, man. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's a good place to end it because, yeah. damn, man, yeah. at a loss for words because that's a really incredible story. And like yeah. you said, you're still a young man and there's a lot, a lot of life to live. And yeah. um, there's a healthy amount of acknowledgement you can give yourself and you'll get from other people when you do yeah. feats like running a marathon and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, just stay the course. I'm here for you, brother. And uh, all right. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for inviting me, man. It's been a, been a pleasure. So thank you. All right, you guys. With that being said, talking gums a long way. We'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.